0: Hello, and welcome to Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro, a podcast all about the Bible, theology, and all things related to the Christian faith. I am the Ryan half of Ryan and Brian, and this is episode number 30. This week, Brian and I are talking about the Apocrypha. As you might recall, earlier this year, we talked about the intertestamental period, which is the time between the Old and New Testament. We talked about some of the conflicts and rulers of the time, but we didn't talk too much about the stories and texts that were told and written then, which came to be known as the Apocrypha. In this episode, we look at some of the stories and the relevance they can have as we are reading scripture. And if you're confused by the title of this episode, about sparrows being the worst, don't worry. It will all become clear as you listen. Before we get started, if you're enjoying the podcast, would you mind leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or a review on Facebook? And if that's not your thing, would you mind just sharing the post about this episode or another episode you've enjoyed on Facebook? Or just tell your friends. That works too. We'd love to expand our audience and continue to grow. All right, let's jump into this episode looking at the Apocrypha. All right, Brian. Welcome back to the Bistro. Hey, Ryan. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. It's been a long time since we've been back in the Bistro. Yeah, I mean, m- minutes, hours, <laughs> days. Hey, it's all it's all the illusion. It's all illusion. We've had a wardrobe change. A and- Wardrobe change, and I will say, you've got a stunning shirt on. Well,
1: this was plaid day. Pla-
0: plaid day. You know, you've made fun of my wardrobe and that I usually no not you didn't no. It was more of an observation. Observation. An that, observation. That you wear that wore, the same thing a lot. Right. Which I note I am wearing a different yeah. I'm wearing a button I'm sure, today. Good. But I I made a note that you are a fan of
1: plaid. Of uh, I do wear plaid a lot. I don't I don't know, I just I like it. And so this shirt, you know, I got it. Meyer. Me hair. We say it French here,
0: so it's <laughs> fancy.
1: It was on the clearance rack and so yeah.
0: Man, it's yeah. good. It's that blue plaid. It's really making your eyes pop.
1: My brown—it makes my brown eyes blue. <laughs> is that
0: <laughs> something? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, uh, this is why you all came to the bistro. Right. Is well, to let's, hear. let's talk about something different. Then, all so. right. So, hey, last week we talked about uh, different versions of the Bible, and Was we that talked last to, week.
1: Yeah. Okay. Last week, whenever I make a time reference, you always change the order of the.
0: Oh, I make a change of the order. <laughs> Anyway, okay. in a time previous to <laughs> Mark, now, it, when, will then, the <laughs> when, when will then be now, um, Spaceballs reference, so we talked about um, some manuscripts, and there were a different yeah. versions of the manuscripts, and one of the things we talked about was John 753 yeah, through, through 811, 8, 11, and it was yeah. the woman caught in the act of adultery. Sure. And so I asked you some questions about that, like yeah. where did this come from? And you said, like, I actually think this comes from the apocrypha.
1: Well, I didn't say it comes from the well, apocrypha, it comes from but the apocrypha. It, it has it has a relation to a story in the Repo- apocrypha, I think. And that there's part of that that's going on. Yeah, no, I I don't think it comes from the apocrypha. Be very careful there.
0: Okay, but, <laughs> yes, my deepest apologies. <laughs> that there was some relation to a story in the Apocrypha. And so we started talking, and we've done an an episode on the intertestamental period and some of the things that were Mm -hmm. happening there and that the Apocrypha helps us understand what's happening in there. And so I just started asking you some questions about like, let's talk about some extra biblical literature and what
1: that is, where it comes from. And so... Yeah, Yeah. extra biblical. And particularly, I'd say what we're going to focus on today is in intertestamental literature. So we've talked about the intertestamental period. Mm -hmm. And I've mentioned, I think, before that there are these books that were written uh, after the time of the Old Testament, before the New Testament, that we don't consider to be uh, inspired by God in the same way that the New Testament or the Old Testament is. We don't understand it to, to be authoritative in the same way. And yet... There, there are these books. There's two different groups of books I'm going to talk about. But the apocrypha you mentioned specifically, the apocrypha is read by Christians for a long period of time, and um, is is continues to be read depending upon what um, particular church you might be a part of. There are those who um, give it some different importance than others. Uh, For example, uh, in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, most Roman Catholic Bibles, this is where most people come become familiar with the Apocrypha, will contain that. But there's Protestant translations, like the King James Version, for example, has the Apocrypha in it. Um, there, You can get the Apocrypha in the King James Version. It was originally translated. Uh, some of the early manuscripts of Christian Bibles in Greek contain mm-hmm. the Apocrypha. And so um, it was read by Christians for a long time. Again, not necessarily th- – Thinking that it was inspired, or that it's equal to, let's say, the Gospels, or or you know, the Book of Malachi, or anything like that. But um, but can tell us something about this intertestamental period that I've talked about some. So we'll talk about that. The other group of books is interesting too. It's called the Pseudopigrapha. So the Apocrypha is mm-hmm. a is a very specific group of books. In, in and it depends on how you count because some of these books are parts of other books. But we usually say around fourteen books um, that were written. In Greek, these are not – these don't occur in Hebrew, but they're written in Greek. Um, After the period of the time that the Old Testament – I would say canon was closed, but after the period of the writing of the Old Testament, before uh, the first century, before the coming of Jesus, first first century A.D., we we find this this group of 14 books that then kind of get circulated together. I mentioned some of them uh two of them in fact we'll talk about Susanna here a little bit but Susanna and Bell and the Dragon are additions to the Book of Daniel for example. Um there's
0: Yeah, Bell Bell the Dragon? Bell and the Dragon. Bell and the, yeah, dragon. Bell
1: and the dragon. Uh yeah, <laughs> yeah, related to Baal, you know, yeah. it's a it's a name for foreign deity. But um the the um well, there's different kinds of literature. There's there's one book uh, that is called Sirach that uh, is is like Proverbs. It's a it's a series of wise sayings. But the pseudopigrapha, then, what that means is it's it's falsely attributed. In other words, these are books that were falsely attributed to to different authors. Okay. Uh, the most famous probably is the Book of First Enoch, uh, and I'll I'll mention that a little bit later. But uh, but some some different. Um, uh, books in that group and that's a kind of a bigger group and a little bit more of an ambiguous group than the Apocrypha um, that also from this rough period of time between the closing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Uh, but these 14 books that occurred, you know, they appeared in the Greek translation of the Old Testament which we call the Septuagint. Mm-hmm. They they appeared in the Latin Vulgate which is why then in the Roman Catholic, you know, I mentioned before the, the Roman Catholic Church used the Latin Vulgate quite highly and so we find um, that they were translated then into into most modern C- Roman Catholic translations. And so so there are these two different groups of books that are sometimes interesting. Let me go ahead and mention Pseudepigrapha. I mentioned first Enoch. Uh, do you have your Bible there? I think you got rid of your Bible. I, no, you have the I, No, day. I never okay. get rid of my Bible. <laughs> Look at the book of Jude, verse four, 14. I want you to read that for me, which is – this is interesting to a lot of people that that they find this. Jude 14. Yeah, just uh, verse 14. Yeah. Uh, uh, it was about these
0: that Enoch, and the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, look, the Lord comes with tens of
1: thousands of his holy ones. Okay, and do you have a footnote there that says something about where that comes from?
0: Yes. Wait. I don't, actually. You don't? Really? Wait. Hold on.
1: I don't think I do. Oh, This shows that we rehearsed this, so... Yes. No. Uh, no, it doesn't. Well, Here's what my footnote says. Um, well, I had you just read 14. If you read 15, uh, since thousands upon, thon, upon thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone to convict all of them of the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Then you'll have a footnote.
0: Well, it says uh, he pictured this judgment by quoting a prophecy from First Enoch
1: nine. Okay. So he, here's the interesting thing: is so First Enoch is one of these pseudo epigraphical books that. that that occurs before the the time of of the writing of the New Testament. And Jude makes a reference to it here. Now, I don't think that means that Jude necessarily considered it inspired, but he's using this tradition that everybody would have been familiar with. And And that, this is the thing I, I think. The reason the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha can be useful to us in understanding the message of the Scriptures is, is it shows us something about, we've talked about worldview before, it shows us something about the worldview of people in the first century. So if Jude knew this book and he knew it, he thought the, his readers would know it well enough to be able to just refer to it, that shows us that it had some impact upon their they the would have known view.
0: it. He wasn't going to just reference something they would have no frame
1: of reference and, and for. And so he uses that reference there. Again, I don't think that necessarily means he thinks it's inspired, but he, he he makes that reference in order to make his point about false teachers there in that place. So books like the Pseudepigrapha and the Apocrypha, I think they can help us get into the mindset or the worldview of, of the people that Jesus was speaking to, that Paul was writing to, that Jude and Peter and the other, uh, other authors, John – uh, I think it helps us understand. I'm going to. Sh- I'll give you a couple of examples of that. I think in in the apocrypha. Now you mentioned the 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 story of the adulterous woman. Um. Well, yeah. I think well, let's start there. The story of the adulterous woman. All, all I mentioned is there's this other story that is very similar. And and in fact, there's some language in that story in that we as we find it in the Gospel of John. Um. You know, we've talked when we talked about um textual criticism. It it probably is not original to the gospel of John. But what I didn't say then is there's, there's a early Christian author that makes a reference to this story about Jesus forgiving an adulterous woman. And this could be an authentic story of Jesus that, that, Made its way in because, and it's a well-loved story today because of its its message and because it was considered to be important. Didn't know exactly where to put it sometimes. Sometimes it's in the Gospel of Luke, a couple of different places it it occurs in manuscripts in the Gospel of John, but it finally kind of lights here and mm-hmm. and people. Uh, pay attention to it, um, but this story has some similar language to a story in the Apocrypha. And again, remember the Apocrypha was not written in Hebrew; it was written in Greek. Mm-hmm. But one of the things is, do you remember in the story of the adulterous woman? This is the first thing that made me notice this this connection. Actually, um, in the story of the adulterous woman, it says they came, and here's the interesting thing: it says they came to trap Jesus. That's that's how it begins, and so. Uh, they basically say what should be done with this woman who is caught in adultery, and Jesus doesn't say anything. Mm-hmm. Instead, it says he begins to to write, and it says, and we don't know what he wrote, and there's lots of speculation about that. But it says that they went away from him from the oldest from the elders first. Mm-hmm. Now, in the book of Susanna is is a part of the – it was an addition, I would say, to the book of Daniel. Again, it doesn't occur in Aramaic or Hebrew. It's only in Greek. Um, this story of Susanna, there are these two elders of Israel that make a false accusation against Susanna. And so it's a similar kind of story. Go ahead. You have Susanna there? I do. Just read the first couple of verses there for us. Kind of set the scene. Talks about her, de- her father. Um, there, go ahead and go ahead and read just a little bit of that.
0: Yeah, there was a there was a man living in Babylon whose name was Joachim. He married the daughter of Hilkiah, named Susanna, a very beautiful woman and one who feared the Lord. Her parents were righteous and had trained their daughter according to the law of Moses. Joachim was very rich and had a fine garden adjoining his house.
1: The Jews used to come to him because he was the most honored of them all. Okay, so. One of the things that's interesting in the apocrypha is several of these books that have narratives to them. They're stories. They they start talking about the righteousness of the people, and you got to remember this is kind of a time where there's this. The, you know, Israel's been in captivity. Um, the things are not going the way that they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, what we find here in this in this story is is Joachim uh, here and and Hilkiah is they're seen as righteous people. So this is a righteous family. Uh, and even in the, even the midst of wickedness. And that's one of the things that we're going to see is there's a story of kind of righteousness versus wickedness in the book of Susanna. So it says that he had this great garden, and I'm going to go ahead and just tell you the story. You can read it. It's it's actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. Some people call it the earliest detective novel. Um, <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty cool story, uh, but what happens is that they used to gather in his garden because it was a good gathering place for the Jews in this exile community, in this community of exiles. And um, – Particularly what happened there is there, there are these two elders of Israel. Now, here's the whole point. An elder of Israel was supposed to have, if you read the Old Testament, an elder was supposed to have a high standing within the community because they were supposed to be leaders. Mm-hmm. And they were supposed to be spiritual leaders of the people. They, they were the ones who were supposed to be righteous themselves. And you know they were seen as having wisdom because they'd lived a long time and and these kind of things. And so these two elders, though, Independently, begin to lust after Joachim's wife, whose name is Suzanne, as you saw there. And um, they both start getting in the habit of kind of hiding, trying to watch her in the garden, so they can kind of because she know,
0: bathes in the garden.
1: Well, she, yeah, yeah. And so they they find each other there. Eventually, they see each other there, and basically, you know, say, "What are you doing here?" "What are you doing here?" You know, and they and they find out that the, the same thing, and so they make this they. They, they Same way that there are these people who tried to trap Jesus, they kind of make a trap for Susanna mm-hmm. because the whole thing is – and here's, here's the point. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says the testimony of two elders is irrevocable. Mm-hmm. In the court system, the way it worked within the law is if two elders – because, again, they were seen as upright people, righteous people. If they testified about anything, that was considered to be – you know, airtight two or three in the presence of two or three witnesses, this should be done. So what happens is they, they hatch this plot that they're going to catch Susanna and they're going to try to force her to sleep with them. And, and the way they're going to do this is, is to say that they'll make a false accusation against her Mm -hmm. if she doesn't. So what happens is they wait until, like you said, she's bathing. They go, they go and catch her. They, um, they tell her the plot and she refuses. She refuses them. And basically we get in the narrative that she has this idea that it's better for me to die than to you know, this is how righteous he is than to do what would be against the law of God.
0: Yeah. And, and the and the, the charge they place against her yeah. is that she there was a another a man, another another man, man, man in, in there with her. Another man. And that he escaped.
1: Yes. And yeah. so so what happens is she ends up yelling, people come running. And these two elders of Israel say that she was with another man. She was meeting a man in the garden and uh, that he, yeah, he gets away. So here's another interesting parallel with Jesus and, and the adulterous woman. This has often been noted. I've heard this in mm-hmm. sermons noted before. That in the story that we have in uh, in John in John, you know that passage that's yes, there. I'm sorry, <laughs> that's fine. That's the story. Let's just call it the story of the adulterous woman, a precapia adulterae. But the story. am I precapia Yep, that's the one. The story of the adulterous woman we have. You might remember she's brought alone.
0: Right, the man's, it says she was caught, but there is no man. There's no pre- man
1: present. Mm-hmm. And according to law, both of them, if if it was a, an act of adultery, should have been brought on trial. Mm-hmm. So what happens then is, you know, these people can't believe that Susanna, this, this would happen, and so they have these kind of formal, um, you know, this formal trial for her. But God, the two elders have. Yeah, well, just wait. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm, God speaks to Daniel, though, and so yeah. the hero Daniel comes on the scene, and... Um, and basically, yeah, the two elders testify against her, and so you know the the penalty for adultery is stoning, mm-hmm. and, and so that's what's that's what's going to happen. She's going to die. So what happens is Daniel comes on the scene and he independently uh, questions both of the elders, mm-hmm. and and here's the question. He says, "Well, if you saw Susanna with her lover, under what tree was she, you know, meeting him?" And both of them give different answers. So it shows that they're giving false false testimony, testimony. which is very interesting because according to the law, same Deuteronomy passage, it says if you give false testimony, then the witness should receive the penalty that the, the person they were testifying against should receive. So really what should happen in the case here is that both of them should die. Mm-hmm. And that's what Daniel Daniel basically says because you've lied and he he makes a Greek and joke in Greek, which is kind of hard to translate, but basically says, well, you saw them under this this tree, the same thing that you know, uh, the way it sometimes translated. one translation I saw said, um, you saw them under the yew tree, well, you'll be hewn in half. you know there's kind of this play on words and this other mm-hmm. one. you saw them under the clove tree, well, you'll be cleaved in half, you know. And so you're going to receive this penalty. And so that's what happens. Susanna is exonerated. Um, these two elders then are are put to death because they're they're giving false testimony. And, and the whole point of this story is kind of you know again this contrast of righteousness versus the wickedness. And it's kind of an expectation. Here is this here is this um, this righteous woman, and yet there are these two elders that should have been righteous, and yet they're doing this in order to try to entrap her to use her for their own purposes. So there's some similarities. Do you see there's a a similar kind of trap? Now, here's the part that, that, that people sometimes get a little upset when I start talking about this because they, they bring suit, they, they, not Susanna, they bring the woman in, in the case of the, the story of the adulterous woman, but not the man. But I always ask then my students, what's the trap here? So, and and you can answer this a couple of different ways, but what's the trap for Jesus? Like, what are his choices when they say what should be done with this woman? Mm-hmm. Well, the law says stone her to death, right? Right. And so I always say this, a trap always needs two sides. Mm-hmm. It's like a bear, if you imagine a bear trap, trap. Yep. Uh, it needs two sides in order for the trap to be sprung. So on the one hand, it's the idea, well, uh, there's this, and what a students will a lot, a lot of times say, well, Jesus was was a graceful person, and he didn't want to see her her punished, but that was the law. What I wonder is if they're not trying to trap him, and they're giving false witness as well, just like the elders in the in the story there. Because here's what Deuteronomy says: it says that the elders, the ones who are making the accusation, the the witnesses mm-hmm. against the person, are to be the first people to throw the stones. So here are these these ones who are ready to stone her, and Jesus then refuses to answer. So my what I wonder is if she wasn't really taken in adultery. Now it says that she was taken in adultery, but is there, there's some way in which they're being false with this accusation is what I think. Mm-hmm. Some people think that they may have set her up or, you know, whatever, right. however we understand this. Uh, what happens is I think is, is perhaps they're looking for Jesus to make, you know, a, a statement against her that is going to show that he's not really a prophet. And so when he begins to write in the dirt, I, I think he's probably right in the Book of Deuteronomy. He's writing this passage about false witnesses and the ones who are making the accusation are the ones who are then to throw the first stone. And you might remember um, that's what he says. He talks about this idea of of casting the stone, the one who's Mm -hmm. without sin. And I think the idea is without sin in this matter should cast the first stone. Now, whether or not you think you, you you interpret that the same way I do, the story of Susanna kind of shows us that there's this kind of thing going on that there's this is this is not an unheard of kind of practice. And again, it gives us some insider understanding there. Questions on that or comments? Anything you want to say?
0: No, I think I think it's the the connection is really interesting right. to to see those two pieces, and yeah. that you know I, I think again. Kind of going back to the the Enoch thing is that this was a this would have been some literature that would have been known to the people.
1: People would have been familiar with this story. I think that's correct. I think that's absolutely correct. Yeah,
0: yeah. So let me ask you this: So why, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm jumping the shark here, but like why isn't this in, why isn't this included? I mean, I, we understand sure. like that it's not. Um, you know, I think one of the things you said is like. You know what you appreciated about the canon was there were some books that were yeah. not included in that. That's how it makes you think have confidence, uh, and then, right. then what we have is what God wanted. But you know there are some traditions that include that in there. But why, why, what was this the split like? Why we
1: don't have it if it does illuminate in some ways? Sure, the rest of Scripture. Protest- <laughs> you know, I'm going to tell you the funny thing is is Christians. I'll say it this way: Christians read these stories for a long time. It's really the Protestant Reformation. Even after you know, I mentioned the King James Version translated it, which was a Protestant translation, um, but Christians even after the Reformation continue to read these. They continue to know these. I'm going to talk about First and Second Maccabees in just a minute as well. A lot of that history we get from these books. You know, we can read Josephus as well. People read. You know, Protestants read Josephus as well. the The point is, and you mentioned some some traditions included in. I would say most traditions that use the apocrypha do not consider it on par, par with the rest of scripture. They, there's a term "Deuterocanonical," which right. means
0: extra canon.
1: Yeah, se- secondary importance. We might say something to that effect, mm-hmm. um, and that's often the way that it's used. But, but even then, like I said, for a long period of time, uh, people have read it. I think it's really it became kind of this idea: oh, these are in in these Roman Catholic Bibles, so this must be some kind of you know inappropriate book, and, and that's not. The case at all. The word, and I didn't mention this already. The word "apocrypha" means the hidden, hidden ones or the hidden things, and so you know they sometimes will talk about this idea. I, I'd say it has to do with of hidden origins, but but it'll have to do with this idea that um, oh, these these are things we shouldn't read. And I don't think that's the case at all. We don't read them on par with scripture, but they do illuminate the thought process. And I'll give you another good example. I think later in the in the podcast where I think it helps us understand some things about. Jesus' statements and and his disciple the way his disciples thought a lot of it is that when Jesus is talking, as I said when we talked about worldview, when Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, for example, to get ourselves as much as we can into the worldview of the people that are hearing that helps us to um, uh, to better understand what Jesus is saying. That, and that's really what I'm you know don't don't read them you know <laughs> if you have a choice between reading the Bible and reading the Apocrypha, read the Bible. But mm-hmm. if you want some extra uh, understanding of the of the time and what mm. people were thinking i think the apocrypha can, can can help illuminate that and i'll give you another like i said a couple of examples of that later on but but really it was kind of almost a response to the separation between between roman catholicism and uh, and the protestant churches is, is why we began to to um you know, kind of leave, quote unquote, leave it out.
0: Yeah. So, do we, so in contrast to the pseudopigrapha, <laughs> pseudopigrapha, pseudopigrapha. Mm-hmm. So, do we know who wrote most of the books in the Apocrypha
1: then? Like, we have, well, <laughs>
0: because yeah, I mean, if the other one's like falsely attributed, like,
1: well, there's this guy named Jesus that wrote Ben, Jesus Ben Sirach. It's not the, not that guy, <laughs> but a different guy named Jesus. But, but we don't really know too much about who he is. But yeah, there are some that, that there will be some indication. Uh, there are some even in the apocrypha, and this is where it gets a little little tricky that you know, the wisdom of Solomon, mm-hmm. for example, in some of these books, but but uh Syrac, we usually call it Syrac or Ben Sirach or uh, um Ecclesiasticus is the is the Latin term that's used for it, uh is written by some guy named Jesus. You know, not that guy, but another one. And uh not that guy. <laughs> well, you know. Um but not, not the big one. <laughs> Right. but we don't necessarily know yeah exactly everything about it. i mean we can tell something again about the setting like like i said this seems to be a setting in exile mm-hmm. and there's a lot of them that, a lot of these narratives that kind of have that story what is it like to be uh, a righteous and again the characters are usually these righteous people in this period of time where you're being oppressed and where you're in, in in the midst of an exile community how can you continue to be a righteous person in that context is kind of the kind of the if i had to summarize that would that be what the apocrypha
0: and the pseudepigrapha are about
1: apocrypha more than the picker. and pseudepigrapha is just like i said it's kind of an amorphous group there's all kinds of things in it and and i will say this just just so our our listeners can can understand this um there there are Books that are called New Testament Apocrypha or New Testament Pseudepigrapha, we're not talking about any of those at this point. We might talk about those later on. For me, those are not as interesting because they're after the after the period of the writing of the New Testament. But um, we're talking about these intertestamental book, books, which is the Old Testament Apocrypha and, and the Old Testament Pseudepigrapha. Those are the ones that are really, to me, uh, interesting because, again, they, they kind of tell us about the the worldview of the people in the first century uh, or, or a little bit earlier. So, so you can
0: so – yeah. and, and- and if you understand that, then you can understand the world that Jesus is appearing
1: in. That that, and that's why that I'm interested in him. Yeah, let's talk about First and Second Maccabees. We we've talked about the history of this. Some um, we talked about Daniel not too long ago um, in, in, on this podcast in an episode, and and I, I mentioned these these different kingdoms that arose and and fell, and I mentioned specifically this period of time after the after Alexander. Uh, Al- Al- after Alexander the Great, there was this period that was called the Diadochi, when his different generals took over different parts of, mm-hmm. of the kingdom. And then eventually there's this kind of battle between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, the Seleucids in Syria and the Ptolemies down in Egypt. And they're kind of battling back and forth, you know, the Syrians to the north of Israel and the, and the Ptolemies to the south in, in Egypt, battling over this period place we call Israel Palestine. I should talk that'd be something to talk about sometimes the geography there and why that's such an important place, but um but that that period of time is talked about in this book of First and Second Maccabees and we we've, we've talked about the Syrians Antiochus IV Epiphanes uh, Epiphanes tried to wipe out Judaism mm-hmm. and the Maccabees then that's what these books are about. It's a history of the that rebellion, that re- revolution where they, they fought back against this oppressing Syrian army. And it tells us the origins of that. It tells us about their victories and and eventually their ability to get into uh, the temple and shut themselves in. It, it talks about all of the things that happened in, in, that, in that period of time. Here's the thing I, I think is helpful with that. Not only does it tell us kind of about that period of time that helps us understand the book of Daniel, there's a way that the mm-hmm. Old Testament book of Daniel we can kind of see – what I understand the prophecies in Daniel, some of them coming to pass in the book of First and Second Maccabees, but the, here this is a common thing. Everybody understands this, and you hear this all the time. Jesus was not the kind of Messiah, right? He was not the kind of ruler or king that people were expecting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and what will we often say? They were expecting what? The warrior, a, a military leader, a warrior, mm-hmm. and and. and we say that, and everybody understands that. I'd say when you begin to read Judas, you know, about Judas Maccabeus, and about his 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 brothers, about the Maccabean Revolution, you begin to understand why they were expecting that kind of a messiah. It's because God had, you know, the Syrian army was a more powerful force, but God um, their understanding again in these books is that he raised up this family, this righteous family again he, here it is righteousness righteous. in in the, in the midst of this oppressing uh, people, he raised them up and, and what he did with them is that uh, he he threw off this this oppressing power. you know uh, not only did, did, were they able to cleanse the temple, <laughs> that right. Sound familiar to you? Yes, they were able to cleanse the temple and and resume worship, even though Antiochus Epiphanes had desecrated the temple. But they were eventually able to have rule themselves, and, and they became kings. Of of Judea, <laughs> kings of the Jews, right? Uh, and, and they reign for a period of time. Now, here's the the, the sad part of the story is you don't have to look too far down the road until just a couple of generations later they're oppressing the people, right? It the turns ma- sour. It, it does, and and you know it's the whole thing. You know why well, they say absolute power, you know pow- power corrupts, corrupts absolute. absolute power absolute, corrupts absolutely. You know, and, and so it's that kind of an image that we get or picture. But when when people were looking for a Messiah. Uh, for example, John chapter six, uh, you know, he feeds the five thousand. I think they're going, you know, we we are undefeatable with this guy at at at, at, at as the general, right? Mm-hmm. And it's they try to make him king by force, is what John six says to us, and, and that's what they're kind of thinking. I, I've said this. I think I've said this before. It's interesting the number of people. Uh, and Richard Bacham did a really interesting study on this. Something like ninety percent of the young boys who were born in Judea in the first century were named after one of the Maccabean kings, one of the, one of the Maccabean rulers. And you just look at Jesus's disciples. There were two Judases, like Judas mm-hmm. Maccabeus, Simon. Simon. There were two Simons. One was a zealot, mm-hmm. and the other's the dude that he ended up naming Peter. Peter. Um, so that's that's four out of the twelve right there. You have Matthew, which is a, a, a form of Mattathias. Uh, you have John. You know you have you have James. You know Yakov. You have all of these different uh, that are named. Most of them are named after one of those one of those warrior
0: uh, conqueror. And, and, Redeemer, and,
1: and why do you name your little boy if you're a first-century Jewish person living under the Roman Empire?
0: You're hoping your kid's the why one. Why do you
1: name your kid Judas? Right, you're mm-hmm. thinking well, yeah. this, this is, and, and that's what they're looking for, I think. So here's Simon, right, and uh, when Jesus is is. Um, uh, you know, when when he's arrested, they told him earlier that night, I don't know if you've noticed this detail or not, but in Luke it says, he, he says, anyone who has a sword should sell it, you know, now, and, and or, you know, I've told you that before, now you should have a sword, you know, basically saying there's kind of conflict coming. They said, well, there's two, and, and we find out later in the night, according to John, John's the only one who tells us this, that when Jesus is arrested, Peter is the one who draws out a sword. He's at least one of the ones that one has the a sword. I think the other Simon. We don't know this. This yeah. is my speculation. I think that the other Simon. He's called the Zealot. It's probably the one who has the other sword. He was ready for the. He but was ready for the fight. He's ready for the battle, and that's that's what they see as happening. And even James and John, you might remember, you know, it, either their mother or, or they themselves come and say, "When you enter into your glory, can we sit right, one on your right and one on your left?" And they're not thinking in, in your kingdom. They're not thinking you know we have this perspective of thinking about a heavenly kingdom they're thinking about marching into Jerusalem just like Judas Maccabeus did and even though the Syrian forces were more powerful they were able to take the temple and they were able to set up an, a kingdom mm-hmm. and they're thinking the same thing even though Rome's more powerful well we serve the god of Israel and he's promised us he's sending a messiah who's going to who's going to give us this freedom right yeah and, and so when Jesus begins to say things like uh, well, it's Peter again, right? Jesus tells his disciples for the first time after after Peter says, you're the Christ. We believe you're the Messiah. That's that what that word Christ means. Mm-hmm. Uh, we believe that you're this one sent from God, this special ruler, this special king sent from God, anointed one. Um, and and uh, right after that, Jesus says, and now the son of man has to suffer and he has to die. And, and he's saying it's in accordance with the prophecies, right? The Old Testament prophecy says this. And Peter says... Never, Lord, right?
0: Right. That can't
1: happen. Right. And and so you know he's he's just recognized that Jesus is is this Messiah, and now Jesus says he's going to die, and he's like, that's not the way the story goes. That's not that's not the way it happened in First Maccabees, right? Right. And, and so I think I think that's where you know those kind of things kind of help us understand again the mindset, the worldview of Jesus' disciples, and and kind of what's going on when the crowds are trying to make him into king. I think this is this is what's on their mind. So that's why I think it's valuable to to read it. Gives us the history f- from the perspective of Daniel, kind of gives us the mindset of the people who are looking for this uh this messiah. It tells us about you know the things that happened in between, so
0: Yeah, interesting. So I mean, what would
1: you? I mean, would you say that you think it's beneficial for us as Christians to? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. When I when I would teach intro to to read these, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But I know, Brian, I'm just here, I'm just here. <laughs> no, come on, no, no, no. I mean, do you
0: think it's it's beneficial for Christians to, you know, and to because I think again we talked about different versions, you know, CSB, right. ESV, and all that stuff. None of them include this material.
1: Well, yeah, a lot of them don't. The revised Standard Version does. The new Revised mm. Standard Version, you can find it. It's not yeah, too hard I'm not to find saying out there. You can't it, find yeah, it. I'm
0: it. just saying, like, I imagine most of our listeners right. are using NIV, sure. ESV, CSB.
1: I think that it is very valuable for us to read this again. T- it's more valuable to read Scripture. You're right. <laughs> don't don't yes. hear me. Don't hear me say anything different than that. The, the, and I do not consider the Apocrypha to be Scripture, but I think there are some of these things that it kind of brings to light. We mentioned John 10. Uh, before and that idea of um, of uh, the the sh- good shepherd yes uh, discourse where Jesus mm-hmm. is talking about being the good shepherd all who came before me were thieves and that's robbers mm-hmm. you know I mentioned the Maccabees then there's it, it's 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 taking place on the feast of dedication that's what John tells us is where that passage when, when that takes place dedication is is Hanukkah that's when you're celebrating the the Maccabean kings. And Jesus comes and says, I'm the good shepherd, right? Right. I'm the, I'm the, if you're celebrating Judas Maccabeus today, I am the good shepherd. Shepherd, of course, standing for ruler. And, and so, you know, those those are the kind of things that it gives us background to. I think helps us understand just a little bit more nuanced uh, than we we might notice otherwise, and and gives us kind of a different understanding there. I was actually talking to one of our listeners. Go, go ahead, you're going to ask. No, 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 go ahead. I was talking to one of our listeners about this not too long ago. And uh, he's a part of a church that uses the lectionary, and he was saying, you know, the, that good shepherd comes around every year, and it's kind of like, oh, you know, what a nice image of Jesus as this gentle shepherd, mm-hmm. you know, this mild shepherd. But again, in the context of Hanukkah and thinking of it in in terms of the background of the, the Maccabean dynasty the, 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 right. that was there, the Maccabean kingdom – And and that Hanukkah
0: was a celebration of that conquering.
1: And then he says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. And so – you know, basically saying I'm a different kind of king than you guys are looking for. This is a different kind of situation than what you're celebrating. We're not going to do a military kingdom. It's it's a different kind of kingdom that I'm I'm coming to be king of.
0: Yeah, and, and it's radical in the sense yes. of, yes, I'm going to die or I'm going to lay down my life for mm-hmm. you. But also, like, he's denigrating in some ways these – well, I don't yeah. know if it's denigrating, yeah. but just he's making a statement about those who have been before and who they're kind of ins- – and. I mean they're celebrating the temple being cleansed again right. but also Judas the the, the uh, what these men have done. Right. And they would have been considered the the shepherds of the yep. people like the leaders Absolutely. and so he's saying he's saying something about himself yep. and also saying something about them that's right. so it's that's right. uh that's yeah, It would kinda, have been radical. You are right. I get been, what you're saying now. Yes, mm-hmm. the, the, there would have been a, a radical nature to it and right. that not only Am I different, but I'm way better than them. And that's, right. but you're here to celebrate those other guys right. at this point. And again,
1: can we understand, I, you know, can we understand that passage without that? Yeah, probably. But I do think it gives us, you know, like this This listener was saying, it gives a different kind of, of a thought between, oh, the, the gentle shepherd carrying, you know, this picture we have of Jesus carrying the sheep on his back, which all that's true. <laughs> Right, but but when you think about shepherd as the word that's used in the book of Ezekiel for the kings and Isaiah for the kings, and then you 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 have him, you know, it's it's like the Fourth of July, right? Right, and here I am saying, you know, all those other presidents, you know, who came before were not they were looking out for themselves, but I'm coming, and I always say thieves and robbers, you know, it's about violence and it's about greed, right? It's about, and like you said within a couple of generations they're doing things for themselves and. You know, um, it's kind of a sad story. But in a few generations, it, it's hard to believe. But you have this Maccabean king who's crucifying hundreds of his own countrymen, mm-hmm. crucifying, which is considered again from the Old Tet. We know this the Old Testament perspective, a cursed way to die. Um so speaking... generations
0: are a problem in the Bible. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you start with someone that's good, you know, got a king that's good, and then like yeah. and then he had sons and they were well, evil. Right. Or Samuel hot, I or mean, the priests, you know. You
1: know, Samuel and yeah. All, yeah, you're right. It's it's, it's not the, a bad quit having children. I think I'm <laughs> no, teasing that's no. a joke. So speaking speaking of uh of righteousness and 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 people dying, let's talk about the book of Tobit. <laughs> <laughs> I just like that transition. That's an excellent transition, and I think everyone's going to enjoy it. So again, so what I said, you know, in the narrative sections of the Apocrypha, we have these stories of what it's like to be a righteous Jewish person in the context of, of exile. So he, here's how Tobit starts. Tobit starts by ta- him talking about how righteous he is, and he uses a couple of different examples of this. One of the ways that he shows he is, he is righteous is that he gives proper burial to people who've been killed, um, so Jewish, uh, you know, the Jews considered it to be uh, a curse on the land if a dead person was left overnight. Again, mm-hmm. we hear the same thing in in uh, John in in John's version of Jesus' um, crucifixion. He's uh, not his version, but he's the one who who gives us the detail. They wanted to come and break the legs of the people on the cross so they so could, they could t-
0: get the bodies down. Okay,
1: so he actually gets in trouble that for that he gets put into prison for a while. And then when he gets back to his home, uh, he's getting ready to celebrate one of the Jewish feasts. I can't remember what it is. I think it's the feast of Pentecost, is what they're they're getting ready to celebrate. Let me see if I can find this real quick. Uh so this is one of basically he's saying I was such a righteous guy. I was trying to follow the law, I was trying to do mm-hmm. the do the right thing. Okay, that's that's all very good. Mm-hmm. Um and then, oh what? What was the feast? Oh, oh, Pentecost. Yeah, it's chapter two. You've got it there. Chapter two, verse one. Just read that. I know there's some names there. Uh, Yeah. yeah.
0: Then during the reign of Esarhaddon, I returned home and my wife, Anna, and my son, Tobias, were restored to me. At our festival of Pentecost, which is the sacred festival of weeks, a good dinner was prepared for me, and I reclined to
1: eat. So he's getting ready to celebrate. He's just been, he's been away because of his not being a righteous person. He's come back to celebrate this feast of Pentecost. You know, what a great time, you know, mm-hmm. time for the family to get together and have have this feast and all this kind of thing. What happens is this neighbor comes and says, hey, there's been somebody's murdered whose body's laying out here, one of our countrymen. And, and so... Tobit, because he's such a righteous person, rushes off in order to bury the body uh, before the next day. But here's the problem. And we've talked about this in a couple of different places. When you were getting ready to celebrate the festival, you had to do a ceremonial ceremonial cleansing to to cleanse yourself. And when you touch a dead body, you become unclean. Mm -hmm. Okay. So he's trying to do the right thing. Okay, this is what this book is—it's putting us into this quandary. He's trying to do the right thing, but he makes himself unclean in the process of burying this body. And so he's just come back because he was doing this kind of stuff before what got him into trouble. He's just come back to his family, and now he comes back, and he has to—he's so righteous, he's, he's taking care of this. But now he can't go into the house because according to the law— He's unclean, and until he can go through the process of cleansing, which happens doesn't can't happen until the next day, he cannot enter in and have this feast with his family, even though he's just returned. So it's kind of a, it's a pretty cool yeah. story, right? So far, and so uh, so so what happens is that that he does all this, and then I want you to read. He he goes and he ends up sleeping outside. Okay, and and, and go ahead read from verse seven down through verse ten.
0: When the sun had set, I went and dug a grave and buried him. And my neighbors laughed and said, is he still not afraid? He has already been hunted down to be put to death for doing this. And he ran away. Yet here he is again, burying the dead. That same night, I washed myself and went into my courtyard and slept by the wall of the courtyard. Okay,
1: so he's not sleeping inside because to go inside the house makes it unclean. So he's sleeping out. He's doing the right thing. According to the law, he's a righteous person.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm. And my face was uncovered because of the heat. I did not know that there were sparrows on the wall. Their fresh droppings fell into my eyes and produced white films. I went to, to physicians to be healed, but the more they treated me with ointments, the more my vision was obscured by the white films until I became completely blind. For four years, I remained unable to see. All my kindred were sorry for me, and Hayakar took care of me for two years before he went to
1: Eliamis. Okay, so how would you summarize what happened there? How would you summarize the action?
0: Uh, oh, uh, birds pooped in his eyes. Birds he, pooped
1: in his eyes and he went blind. <laughs>
0: that
1: happens. I mean, if that's not just like, of course. Now, this is theological, though. This is a really theological issue, because here's the problem. I mean, after one bird pooped in one eye, wouldn't you move? Like,
0: kind of go, this isn't a good place to sleep. <laughs> I mean, look, I mean, are they, is it the same time? Does it running over? I'm just, I'd say it, it kind of hit him all at once.
1: But but here's there's some big birds, bro. So the bird poops in his eye and goes blind. When I tell people this story, that's the way, that's exactly what you said is exactly the way I tell it, and everybody's like, "That can't be right." But
0: I mean, is that not? How I'm, say that? I'm not making this. I mean, who would make up a story about a bird pooping in your eye? But
1: there's a reason for this, and here's what I want you to see. And this, it, it, we're going to get into the mindset here. We're going to get into the worldview of a first century Jew. Okay, so why is he in the courtyard?
0: Because he couldn't go in the house because of his righteousness. Because
1: he's doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, here's the quandary that we're left with. Here's the problem we're left with. He is struck blind for doing what the law has required of him. Okay, and for a Jewish person of the first century, this would have been a huge issue. In fact, we see it in Jesus' disciples. Mm -hmm. Do you remember John chapter 9, how that? Story begins. I do not. John chapter 9, they're coming along, and there was a man who was born blind. And the disciples asked Jesus a question. And what's the question that they ask? Who sinned him or his parents? Okay. Now, do you see their worldview there? Mm -hmm. That sin led to. There's no question. There's no question that his blindness is a result of sin. Okay, mm-hmm. and that's the thing that Tobit is going to have to deal with because the rest of the book—not the rest of the book, but a lot of the book of Tobit—then is a lot like Job. Mm-hmm. Everybody's basically coming to him and saying, "Look, what did you do that you're blind?" You know, his wife comes to him. It's like you know, all these people are saying, "You you had to do something wrong," and he's going, "I was doing the right. I was doing the right thing, right?" Mm-hmm. And, and that's where the reader's left in this kind of conflict. You know, what is? what's the correct way to understand Tobit's story? And I would say it's the same for the disciples there. Their question, though, to Jesus isn't, isn't, well, did this blindness just happen or whatever? No, this blindness has to be the result of sin. That shows their worldview. Mm -hmm. The only question for them, though, is he was born blind. Okay, so could he have sinned somehow before? must have been his parents. Or was it his parents? Yeah. What?
0: So there that, was a curse on them.
1: That's their theological question. That's their theological question. Was there some kind of sin of his parents, or was it in some way? You know that that was the issue. Was there was no question in their mind. So what does Jesus answer? Neither. Neither this man nor his parents sin. Now he wasn't saying that they are absolutely righteous, right? Mm-hmm. But basically he's saying you've misunderstood the nature of of the affliction of blindness here. Mm -hmm. You misunderstood it. Instead, he says God's glory is going to be revealed in this case. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the chapter, you get to that thing we've talked about before where basically he says, I came so the blind could see because he's healed him. Mm -hmm. We've talked about it when we talked about the pool of Siloam, too. He put mud on his eyes, sent him away to wash in Siloam, comes back seeing, Mm -hmm. becomes a better witness to Jesus than those who saw Jesus. Right. Right. Even though he'd never seen him. Mm-hmm. could not even recognize them which is why I think Jesus healed them the way that he did but then at the end of the chapter Jesus says I came so the blind would be or so the seeing could so the blind would be able to see and the seeing would be blind and you might remember the 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 religious leader said oh are you saying we're blind right yes and and so and yeah basically yeah i didn't say it you did yeah but but that's that's the the point but do you see how the Tobit story kind of gives us the the, that that worldview gives us a, an insight into that idea. That was just a common thought. This isn't just the disciples talking, mm-hmm. you know, out of the corner of their mouth or whatever. This is something that people believed. And so there again, I think that understanding these stories gets helps get us into the worldview of a first century Jewish person. Um, We've talked before about Pharisees. We've talked before about these different groups, and and again, these writings. In, in addition, I'm going to mention the book of Josephus, which technically was written after um, the, the the most of the New Testament would have been written. Um, you know, but again, it talks about Josephus talks about this period of time, and it helps us understand again the worldview of the first century. Um, you know, there are other writings that can help us too. But that's that's how I would say more or less that we can we can use these things. Does that leave you with any questions? or? Yeah, I,
0: you know, I think it's hard for me sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm glad you're pointing this out, like to see these connections sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like where okay. it's, um, you know, the story is interesting, but for, right. for me sometimes it's hard to make those connections between like, oh, see how it's... I'm trying to figure out how to describe it, like how sure. to see myself in that and like how that applies to the New Testament.
1: Well, I'm gonna tell you this, and I, it's funny, I was just talking to a guy, there's there's a person I talk to on a regular basis that preaches and we we get into discussions of these from time to time. And and, and this is one of my, and it might be worth talking about sometime in, in terms of when we're thinking about preparing Bible studies and that kind of thing, but but I, I always say I try to put myself as much as I can into the worldview of, of a first century first century audience now here's where it gets this is even a little bit a finer point mm-hmm. but when we're talking about the Gospels you know we're talking about a first century Jewish mindset mm-hmm. the Gospels take place in Judea Galilee a few things happen in um, in uh, um, Samaria and a few things happen in what we call the Transjordan on the other side of the Jordan River so, as much as possible, you try to get yourself into the mindset of a first century Jewish person in that in that context. And mm-hmm. so, you know, part of this is like I've talked about the the stone water jars. you know right. it's it just it just, it's just reading this kind of stuff and trying to put yourself the most you can into that mindset. Um, I've talked before about you know a pre-modern context, which for a lot of people means, means kind of talking about the supernatural elements but for me as much as anything it means no technology it means um, no electric lights right no electricity Mm -hmm. um, no combustion engines you know trying to think what would it have been like to be in that place where the primary mode of transportation would have been your feet Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a donkey or a horse Um, you know the way that agriculture was done would have been a different thing um Cleansing was a different thing, you know. All so as much as you can, putting yourself into that, into that mindset, and that's that's a lot of you know. When we're talking about the culture, that's what we mean. Uh, I, I think you know. I've said I've said to students for a long time. I think many times when we read. Sermon on the Mount, we picture a bunch of 21st century – well, in plaid shirts, right? 21st century North American Christians standing around with their NIVs open, mm-hmm. and that's not the way it was. And so it requires a little bit of imagination, but but as much as we can read these other things, it kind of puts us into that mindset. That's that's a lot of what you're doing in order to try to understand what's being said. Like I said, the story gets a little bit different when we're going into places like Thessalonica or um, Philippi. Hmm. You know, and that's where, again, you read a little bit about the background of Roman colonies, for example, in the case of Philippi, or um, you think about Ephesus and the role that it had within, within the, the uh, world of Asia Minor and you know, Port City and the, the religion of the Greeks and the philosophy of the Greeks.
0: Right. There's a lot going on there. There's a
1: lot going on, and so again, you're you're trying to think, okay, what would it have been like? First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians four. I can't believe I'm going here, but First Thessalonians four is one of those passages that there's a lot of debate and and problem over. If we put ourselves into the position of people who had just accepted Jesus, um, you know, within the past several months, and had never heard the name of Jesus a year ago, right? Right. That that's that's who that letter's being written to. And too many times, again, we read it first as 21st century North Americans <laughs> with our, in our current context without thinking, thinking in those terms first. Now, I want to be careful. And in fact, we were talking about this earlier. I When I start talking this way, I always get people saying, well, you're saying it doesn't have a message for us. I'm saying, no, absolutely. It's It's mm-hmm. got a message. It's truth. But to understand that truth, we have to understand it first within its original context. Right.
0: Content. Yeah, we've had that conversation about verses and Old Testament and kind of going, how do we understand what this is God? Because yeah. it was delivered to the Jews. But kind of going, it's saying something truthful about God, but it's about the context of what this message is delivered. And, and then in.
1: and then we we under- when we understand what it's saying then we can we can make that application to our context to our mm-hmm. situation today
0: yeah context i mean we keep harping on this but con contextual reading and right. understanding is so important to the the message because yeah. we, we have a tendency to insert ourselves
1: sure in, and, and in everything and we weren't and like i've said before we always make ourselves the hero of the story
0: yeah um we would never be the bad guy
1: but then the the context you know, we're not only talking about the con- literary context—in other words, the, the the text that surrounds the passage we're looking at—but also we're talking about the cultural context and the historical context and linguistic mm-hmm. context. You know, those are the things I always keep coming back to. Uh, and, and that's really—that's what I, I mean. And again, I, I've said this before. I know it. I know it's takes some work. I've done. I've done some of that work. I've done this reading. Mm-hmm. And, and and for me, it it's always come back to 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 just make it come more alive. Um, and the more we kind of think about these things, when we were talking about Daniel, I was, I was thinking about this. We were, we were talking about the the way that you'd separate cheat, wheat and chaff. Um, and, and, you know, understanding those practices just gives us another insight into, into the image that's being given to us there. If we don't think about these things, we kind of just go by them very quickly. I talk about all the time with place names and people names and that kind of stuff. We, we stop and think what group is being talked about. Get out a Bible atlas, a good Bible atlas, and look at these places and see what the significance is there. We could talk about some examples of that another time. But then culturally, just understanding the culture the best we can. I think, I, I just think it opens up scripture so much. And will give us um, just a greater greater appreciation and understanding of what God's saying to us. Again, I've said this a dozen times. He chose to reveal himself to us in these particular historical contexts. So it's up to us to make ourselves equal to the task of hearing this, I think. so.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the, the name things, I, I was doing a study on Romans recently, and, yeah. you know, someone said, look at Romans 16, yep. and you look at there and you see the names, and some of them yep. are Greek names, and yep. some of them are Jewish names. Yep. And, like, so you have a much clearer picture of who the rest of the book, like, who who's yeah. being spoken to? It's this mixed group of people mixed
1: group. understanding the names. Another, so, another little detail, since you brought up Romans 16, I just— talked to somebody about this last week, you know, there's two different groups there that Paul says, and these were my own family, my own mm-hmm. relatives, uh, and the only ones of my relatives who've, who've accepted Jesus, you know, who, who are Christians. Yeah. And so you get this image of his, his kind of, you know, that, that he has been separated from a lot of his immediate family. Cause the word he uses is kind of for kinsman, a distant relative. And, uh, you know, it gives an idea of kind of the loneliness of what it would have been like to have been Paul. Because anyway.
0: yeah, he was a he was a good Jew. Yeah. He was a Pharisee, Pharisee among, of among Pharisees. Pharisees. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, they're probably proud of him. That's my boy when he was going out to to get the Christians. And all of a sudden it's whoa, timeout right. when he makes that change. So let me ask you this. So we know in the synagogues, they're reading the Jewish scriptures. Like mm-hmm. they would have been part of the So where were these books? let's say the pseudepigrapha and the apocrypha were they read in synagogues like how were people exposed
1: to this do we know i don't know too much about that That, that's actually a really good question i'll have to do some research on that that's a question i haven't really thought about too much i I think I'll, i'll tell you i think they could have been but then the other thing i think is and i don't know that it's necessarily that some of these are being read but the stories are being told Right, right. They're they're being handed down, and they're being told in this way. But yeah, it's a good question. I'll have to I'll have to think I about d- I that. I just wonder, you know, like yeah. if, if if we
0: see that First Enoch is is referenced in Jude, right. like was it how pervasive was you well, know what I mean was it was it was it in the the reading circles yeah. of or the
1: synagogues? Here's a here's a non answer to the question, but uh, mm, excellent. That's what, <laughs> what I was looking for. Well, at first I was thinking, well, you know, they're they're they're, they're Greek, not not Hebrew, but then the Septuagint, you know, so. You know, part of the thing that happened, we talked about the Babylonian exile and when people were taken, you know, part of the way Babylon kind of broke the different nations was they would take them away into exile and bring other people in. Mm -hmm. Uh, Syrians were the same way. And um, so what we call the diaspora, in other words, the Jewish people began to be scattered throughout the entire... Dispersed, yeah. yeah, dispersed, uh, scattered is is literally the word. Um, and, And so, you know, North Africa... Mm-hmm. Uh, became a center of of judaism alexandria for example and one of the stories it, this is actually a this is actually a pseudepigrapha i okay. didn't i didn't plan to talk about this but there's one of the pseudepigrapha that's called the letter of aristeas and uh it's a story about how the septuagint which is the greek translation of the hebrew old testament came to be written and uh it, it's it's takes place in alexander egypt the story mm-hmm. and basically the story is to show that it was his, when we talk about translation it actually just reminds me that it was a group translation basically there are these elders elders of, of mm-hmm. israel that were brought together but now they didn't get together in committee the story goes that they each spent exactly 40 days if i remember the story correctly there were 70 that's why we call it the septuagint uh, 72 actually i think there were six from each of the 12 tribes um, But uh, they each went into their cells separately and translated, and lo and behold, each translation was exactly the same word for word. Whoa. Now, (laughs) right, got it. You know, but what that that story is telling is basically the reason that letter of Aristans is written, I think, is to give validity to the translation. So, you know, that would only be a divine act. so, So basically, the author is saying, well, we can trust this Greek translation, and, and and what it shows us is that there were Jewish people, and and later we find out other interested Gentiles in in these things, um, that could no longer read Hebrew, right? Gotcha. And so the Greek translation is necessary because that was the language that they used. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so the but they wanted it to be, you know, a valid translation that could be trusted, and so that's why you get these elders of Israel. Part of the Letter of Aristeus is worth reading too. It's kind of funny because a lot of it is this big feast that they have, and the king of uh, Alexandria asks all of these different questions, and and these um, um, elders of Israel take turns giving their answer, and it just shows their wisdom and what right. know, what wise. People they were, um, and so again, it's to, it's to back up the story is to back that up. But what does that tell us? And here's the connection part you're talking about. Well, it, t- it tells us that there are these Jewish people who who need this Greek translation in order to understand. And and um, then you get people, you know, Septuagint is usually not always, but usually what is used in the in the uh, quotations in the New Testament of. The, the Old Testament is usually the Septuagint. Now, there are a few places where uh, Paul, for example, uh, seems to translate his own. Uh, and most famous is perhaps First Corinthians chapter fifteen. But but you get what I'm saying is they use these this this Septuagint, this Greek translation of the Old Testament when they quote the the New Testament. Interesting. So yeah, very cool. All right.
0: So how would we how would we go about finding this? So, so I, yeah. I you know for everyone I bought the New Revised Standard Version, the Oxford. The new Oxford annotated apocrypha, yeah.
1: on eBay. That's like the apocrypha study Bible. I always say I used to assign that in Intro to the Bible. I would always assign that text for my students. Um, yeah, so you can find it there. You can find it online. Um, I don't think you can find it just on its own anymore. Right? Yeah, I like that. I like that version, but uh, or that edition. I should say, uh, since I was talking about versions and editions, yeah. the. Um, um, Pseudepigrapha, where do we find that? Pseudepigrapha, a lot of it you can find online. There's this two-volume set edited by James H. Charlesworth um, that you can find. It's called The Apocryphal Pseudepigrapha of the Old Testament if you want. so That's a pretty expensive book, but you can find a lot of the stuff online. Just be careful of the translations and don't read anything that people say about first-handing, for example. There's all kinds of crazy stuff out there. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't tell you this, but Enoch, the reason Enoch, in fact, we call this the Enochic literature. There's more than one book that's attributed to him. The reason he becomes such a big figure is you might remember the book of Genesis, the story is told, he's a seventh in generation from Adam, but then it says that he walked with the Lord and was no more. And so there's this kind of idea that that means that he was translated into heaven, that he didn't die. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that necessarily is what it means, but anyway, that became kind of the tradition. And um and so he he becomes this figure. When we when we talked about apocalyptic literature, like Ezekiel, book of book of Revelation, mm-hmm. we often have these heavenly beings, like angels, sometimes or right. Jesus. In the case of the book of Revelation, you know, tells John some of these things. Um, but we find these heavenly uh, persons coming down in order to give special revelation to the to the people who were writing these books. And, and so Enoch becomes one of these figures gotcha. because yeah. he, he was a human, but then he was translated into heaven. So he, he has special insight into the heavenly realms. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he, he becomes, and that's the book of first Enoch has a lot of this kind of hidden mysteries about him, him, you know, the different things that are happening and it's kind of an apocalyptic, it's got an apocalyptic uh, section to it. It, um, well, and I, you don't care about. We'll talk about the Book of First Enoch another time. But it it, it was edited. There's there's five different sections to a, you yeah know, whatever. We'll we'll talk about Enoch another day. Yes. But um, so yeah. the moral of this
0: episode is <laughs> is that the Apocrypha and Pseudopigrapha can yeah. give us a, a glimpse behind yeah. like worldview about what's going on. Yeah. The, the the Bible as we have it now that's probably sitting on your shelf for most people that are listening to it is. Is scripture right? You know, but that this other material can help us get in the mindset and to understand um, what's going on there. And if you have a choice, or you you know you only have an option, (laughs) read the Bible. Bible. Don't read this other stuff. But but that there's a lot that's happening in there. You know, Mm because I think that's always the question: is like, what happened? What's going on? You know, and I've asked you this question before: like, where did the Pharisees come from? Where did the Sadducees come from? And there's there's so much. There's political things happening, but there's spiritual things happening, and. Um, stories that are being told or wherever they're being and, told, because I stumped you on that one. Right. That was uh,
1: good. I don't know where we're I'll being I'll have to told? do some research. And and I'll say this, too, but don't read the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha as though it is it is Scripture. It's different. And and like I said, there are going to be some people out there, and we're, you know, we're websites about it, uh, nearly everything, right? Yes. But there are going to be people out there who take these things more as you know revealed by God Mm -hmm. which I would not understand them to be, but they're more about what, you know, the same way you could read, uh, what's a good example? Uh, Lord of the Rings. When you read The Lord of the Rings, um, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, Roman Catholic Christian living in England in, in the 40s, you get an idea from even that fictional world, something about what he's believing about the way the world works. And so it's the same kind of thing to get into the worldview, into their understanding. So
0: Yeah, and, and kind of on that thought, I and mean, you've talked about this before, is that the, the Jews at the time did not put these stories. They were not considered right. canon or scripture for them right. during this time. And so right. the, the people that were living during this time where these stories were happening didn't include them yes. as part of their scriptures. but. They were an important part of uh, their their world and yep. their culture at the time. And oh, so again, correct. it kind of
1: helps reveal what's what's going on in right. there. Right. Right. I've said before, we basically adopted and even for Jews of the first century had different canons, but we basically adopted the Pharisaic canon. I mean, that's that's mm. the one we adopted because the, the the Sadducees only used the five books of Moses. So they would have considered anything after um, Deuteronomy to be not scripture. So we we adopted the Pharisaic, which is what Jesus uses. He he he's the one who he makes reference to it. He quotes from it. You know, quotes from the Psalms, quotes from Isaiah. So, yep, absolutely cool. Well, this is a fun little interesting episode. I hope so. Yeah, we try to do that. So we'll encourage people to read their Bibles and try to understand, put themselves into the world of the first century and.
0: Yeah, and 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 I like that the the main the earliest manuscripts don't have this with a yeah. woman uh, the caught in the act of adultery. Well, how, what do you say at the adulterous woman?
1: Yeah, w- yeah, woman caught in adultery. You can say yeah, that. Yeah,
0: and read Susanna. So I uh, w- yeah. we had, we had the uh, intertestamental conversation, and I went and bought apocrypha. apocrypha yeah, and, and I read Susanna, and I was like, that's really interesting. It
1: is interesting, isn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah. and it, I mean the, the, some of that Apocrypha stuff, like you said, is very story narrative driven, yeah. and also another moral of this episode is. Don't sleep below a brick wall (laughs) where birds might poop in your eyes. Especially sparrows, apparently. Sparrows, man. They're known eye poopers. They're the
1: worst. (laughs) Sparrows. If you learn
0: nothing else from this episode, sparrows are the worst. You just look at them and go, those are going to make me blind and just get away. (laughs) So, all right. Well, Brian, thanks so much. All right. And we're now, remember, we're still working on our sign off, I guess. So this is the Brian half of Ryan and Brian's podcast. Signing Signing off. off. Have a good one. Well, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. Next week, Brian and I are taking a look at the book of Daniel. As Daniel contains prophecy, we take a look at historical events and how they align with what Daniel foretold. We hope you'll join us for that. Very interesting conversation. You can find show notes, links, and more at thebiblebistro.com as well as sign up for our email newsletter to stay in touch, but also to get some exclusive content we have out there for you. We've put together a tutorial video on how to use the Blue Letter Bible. It's a free online resource to look at the Greek and Hebrew behind the English translations we use. Uh, can really help you understand what's being said uh, in those translations. So sign up for our email newsletter and you will get that tutorial video. You can find us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Bible Bistro. And as always, you can subscribe to us on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. Thanks so much for listening. We will talk to you next Tuesday.